We will turn to two places in Scripture this afternoon. First, from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 26. And we'll read the verses 12 through 18. This is part of a defense that the Apostle Paul is giving before King Agrippa, and he's telling the story of his conversion to Christianity. So Acts 26, beginning at verse 12, he says, In this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to those things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So far from Acts 26, then let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll read that chapter in the first part of chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 3, beginning at verse 1, reading through chapter 4, verse 12. There the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, We are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. 
But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So far from the word of God. Let's respond. The text that we'll be focusing on this afternoon are the verses 1 through 12 of 2 Corinthians 4. It's a long text, so we won't read it again now, but we will be working through it in a largely verse-by-verse fashion. So if you want to keep your Bibles open, that may help you to follow along. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, I chose this text, 2 Corinthians 4, because this is obviously a very momentous occasion for me as your pastor to preach the first sermon, and also for all of us as a church. And this text, 2 Corinthians 4, deals directly with the question of what Christian ministry is and what it's all about. That's foremost on Paul's mind as he's writing this. So it's a good place to start in an inaugural sermon. That said, it's not an easy text to work through. I don't know if you were able to follow Paul's logic as we read through the text, but if you had difficulty, it's understandable, because there's a lot going on in the background that causes him to write the way that he does Whenever we read Paul's letters, it's a little bit like listening to a a telephone conversation where all you hear is the one one half of the conversation and you have to connect the dots 
to figure out what's going on on the other side. And that's especially the case now with 2 Corinthians. It's known to be difficult for that reason because there's, there's a really complex and even painful relationship going on between Paul and the church in Corinth. And we don't know all of the details that play into why he writes the way that he does. So this is definitely not an easy book to work through. But it is a very valuable letter for the church today because more than anywhere else in Scripture, this letter addresses questions about ministry, Christian ministry, what it means to be a servant of Christ, and also deals with questions of suffering and depending on God's grace. And these are things that are very contemporary, very relevant for the church today. So it's worth doing our best to work through even a a difficult letter like this to understand what Paul was communicating to the church then and then also, of course, what the Spirit would teach us through that. Well, if you were to summarize Paul's message in in one single simple sentence, it would be this, what he says in verse 5, what we proclaim is Christ as Lord. In other words, that's what ministry is all about, proclaiming Christ as Lord. You can see it in those exact words in in verse 5, and it's the point that he's making in this whole text. Ministry is not about us. Ministry is not about the minister. Ministry is not even about the church. It's first and foremost about the glory of Christ, proclaiming Christ as Lord. So where does that leave us as ministers or us as congregation or us as Christians who minister to the community or who witness about Christ to others? Well, according to this text, we are three things. First, we are servants of God's word. You can see that in verses 1 through 4. Second, we are witnesses of of God's glory. You can see that in verses 5 and 6. And third, he says, we are nothing but jars of clay containing an immense treasure, the knowledge of God and his glory. And you can see that in in verses 7 through 12. So this afternoon, then, what we'll do is we'll work through those points to try and understand where Paul is coming from, what he was trying to communicate to the church then, and then also what the Spirit would teach us as a church today. Well, one of the big things that's, that's going on in the background that overshadows why Paul writes the way that he does, maybe you picked up on it a little bit already, is that Paul seems to be up against some kind of competition in the Corinthian church. We don't know too much about the men that he's referring to, but it's clear that they had a very different idea of what Christian ministry is all about. For them, it seems like they saw Christian ministry as being all about themselves. Being a minister is all about self-promotion. So you can see in chapter 3, verse 1 already, we read that together. They came with these letters of recommendation. They esteemed themselves very highly. And you see in, in the rest of the book that they draw attention to themselves. They commend themselves, Paul says in, in chapter 10. Or chapter 11, he observes that they're being called super apostles, maybe by themselves, maybe by others. 
And the sad part about it, you can pick this up as you're reading through just in Paul's tone. The sad part about it is that the Corinthian church seems to have bought into that kind of mentality. They let these so-called apostles draw their attention away from the gospel and onto these men, onto their personalities, onto their abilities, to a point that they started looking down on weak Paul, who's strong in his letters but weak in personal appearance. So they start looking down on him and his abilities. That's why Paul needs to be so adamant here in chapter in, chap- in verse 5 of chapter 4, where he says, What we proclaim is not ourselves. No, it's Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as nothing but servants for your sake. In other words, Christian ministry isn't at all about the minister, and Christian service also isn't at all about the person who's doing the serving. So that's, that's what Paul's up against in this letter. And that's the big message that he's communicating, not only in the letter, but especially in, in chapter 4. So he wants them to get it straight in their head. Christian ministry isn't about us. It's about Christ. And it's so essential for us also to recognize that. When ministry becomes all about people and self-promotion or church promotion, it very quickly becomes destructive. Not only does it lead us very quickly into rivalries and and fights, but it also robs us of the focus that we need, which is on Christ and the glory of God that we have through Christ. Now, notice in in verse 2, one of the ways that that this plays out. A faithful minister, we heard this this morning, a faithful minister sees himself as a servant of God's word. He preaches the word, and he does his best to preach it faithfully. But an unfaithful, self-promoting pastor sees the word as his servant, uses the word to promote himself. And you can see that in verse 2. It's clear that Paul is referring to these men when he writes this, where he says, We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with the word of God. This is something that false leaders often do. They, they tamper with the word of God. We saw that also again this morning. They, they twist it in order to establish their own authority instead of seeing themselves as they ought to, as servants of the word of God. They play games with the word of God, discovering these, these secret hidden meanings in the word of God that, that only they can discover, and they seek to impress people then with their abilities, with their cunning, with their intelligence. So, So when they go up then to preach the word of God, their goal, the goal that drives them, is not to make this text that God gives us clear to the congregation or to make the gospel evident, but instead to highlight their abilities, to show how clever, how wise they are. That's what Paul means when he talks about practicing cunning or tampering with the word of God. Well, Paul calls that methodology disgraceful because it makes the truth inaccessible to the average person for whom God has given it. 
Nobody could understand how the preacher arrived at at his conclusions, and it leaves them completely dependent on him. It gives the preacher an elite status. His methodology is completely obscure, but he sounds so smart, so perceptive, so wise, so profound. Paul also calls this methodology underhanded because it robs the people of their security and their trust in the word of God. They can't depend on the word anymore because nobody knows what it means except for that preacher. They would have this very mystical and complex theology that's only accessible to themselves, those elite super apostles, and perhaps to some of their closest followers. Claiming to show people the truth then, they obscured the truth. It's something that false leaders often do. But Paul says he and his colleagues have renounced any kind, any hint of that preaching. They refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with the word of God. On the contrary, he says, look at how he and his colleagues have presented the word of God. By setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That's what true preaching ought to look like. The passage that the minister is explaining should sound more clear to you after studying it than before. You should be able to say when you read the passage together at lunch or at dinner, this passage now makes more sense to me than it did before. See, honest preachers recognize they are merely servants of God's word. Their task is to point people to the truth in God's word, to show how they found that truth and how everyone can see that truth for themselves. They explain the word. They demonstrate its clarity instead of obscuring it for their own self-promotion. And the same is also true of everyday Christians as we witness to others or as we teach our children. Of course, sometimes as we're trying our best to explain the gospel to others or to teach it to our children, we feel like we've befuddled the whole thing and made it more complex than it ought to have been. That happens. It happens to everyday Christians. It happens to preachers as well. But people should be able to see that we're interested in making the truth clear. We're not interested in trying to show off how smart or how perceptive we are. And and unbelievers especially need to be able to recognize that. Sometimes the temptation when we witness is, is to show off how right we are or how smart we are. And it confuses them. It We're on the one hand proclaiming to share them the truth, and yet on the other hand promoting instead ourselves. So as Paul says, by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That is true preaching, and that should be also then our way of witnessing to others. There's a statement, a clear statement of the truth, and then there's an honest presentation of ourselves in all sincerity and honesty and humility. Well, behind that kind of witnessing is a completely different set of motivations than what you find in these super apostles that were going around in Corinth. And that's what Paul explains in, in verses 3 through, through 6. He explains in, in verses 3 and 4, the reality is there's going to be people that hear our message and aren't going to believe. What do you do then when your ministry isn't getting results? 
when your church or your ministry isn't growing the way that you want it to. For Paul, it was simply a matter of God's sovereignty. You see that in, in, verses, in verses 3 and 4 where he says, there's a veil over their hearts. It's not our fault. It's not a lack in the truth or a, a shortcoming in the gospel that we're preaching. And we're not going to change our message in order to reach those people who have a veil over their, over their hearts. And why? Why is Paul able to, to have that confidence in God's sovereignty to preach faithfully and then entrust it to God? Well, because Paul says in verse 5, our ministry isn't about us. We're not proclaiming ourselves, but Christ as Lord. See, if we're proclaiming ourselves, then when our ministries don't grow, we become desperate and we tamper with the word of God and we use whatever means we can to win people. But when, we, when, when our, our goal is the glory of God, then we preach the word of God, trusting God to do with that word what he will do. So he says, if you think that that's what we've been doing all along, trying to promote ourselves like those men who are going around in your midst, then you've completely missed what we're here for and what we're all about. We're not interested in preaching ourselves at all. Christian ministry isn't at all about the minister. What we're proclaiming is Jesus Christ as Lord. And why? Why are they in this ministry? Why are they pouring themselves out to go to Corinth and suffering all kinds of afflictions in order to proclaim Christ as Lord? Well, he explains that in verse 6. For God, he says, who said, Light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's a long expression, and it's easy to let our eyes sort of gloss over as he has so many, the glory of the God, or the, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's a lot to, to process in, in that long statement. But what he's saying is the reason that Paul and Timothy and all his colleagues are pouring themselves out, preaching, teaching, doing everything possible to persuade people of the truth of the gospel is because God in his sovereignty, has shown them something that compels them to proclaim it. And that something is the glory of God in the face of Christ. Or notice how he says it in in verse 4. He he says it a little bit differently in verse 4. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now, I believe that, that light that you find in verse 4 is the same light, the same knowledge that you find in, in verse 6. And it's interesting that he says it twice in that way. He doesn't call it the gospel of salvation. He doesn't call it the gospel of forgiveness, though it is both of those things. But he calls it the gospel or the knowledge of the glory of God. You see, that's, that's the final precious reality at the heart of the gospel. We don't just believe so that we can escape God's wrath. And that isn't even the first and primary purpose of the preacher, to, to give salvation, to give escape to people. No, we don't just believe for that reason, but even more so that we can live in God's glory and enjoy his glory and his beauty. 
And that's, that's something that Paul recognized in the face of Jesus Christ. He recognized the glory of God, and he recognized we can't enjoy that glory. We can't live in God's presence, delighting in his goodness, unless we do so through Jesus Christ. Without Christ, the glory of God is not a precious reality. It's a terrifying reality. Without Christ, an empty sky, no God at all, is far better than a righteous, holy, glorious God who holds sinners to account. But as Paul learned on the road to Damascus, which we read about, the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. And it's true, it's a weighty, it's an earth-shattering, it's a humbling glory, one that caused the Apostle John to fall on his knees, to grow weak. Yet it's also a glory that compels us as a church to do everything that we do together as a church, to come together to church, to worship him, because we know the glory of God is worth worshiping him, or to sing his praises, or to sit before his word, or to tell of his glory to those around us. That is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, says Paul, and that's what compels him to do his work as a missionary. And when he says, God who, who let light shine out of darkness, that's, that's obviously an allusion to creation. And his point is this, the knowledge that we have of God's glory, that precious knowledge that compels us to preach, that is as much a gift and a work of God as that first light that came out of nothing, out of pitch blackness on the first day of creation. And his point then is this, we're in this ministry before you, O Corinthians, because God has given us this gift of seeing his glory, and just having that knowledge of his glory is enough to compel us to lay our lives down so that others can see it as well. We're not in this ministry to make ourselves look great. That may be what those other apostles in your midst or so-called apostles are doing. But that is never, he says, what we have been doing. On the surface, the two might even look comparable. Both are preaching. Both are doing everything they can to win followers after themselves. But at the heart level, those two are doing something completely different He's saying, they are there trying to glorify themselves. We are trying to give you the truth. In reality, this isn't a competition of us versus them. This is a competition between the truth of God, which you desperately need, and a bunch of frauds. We are in this ministry, he says, in other words, because God has shown us the truth of his gospel And we have seen the glory of Christ, and you too need to see it. That's why we came all the way to Corinth in the first place. And brothers and sisters, that's also why we're here together as a congregation. That's why we have the preaching of the word week after week. We come into the presence of God. We sit under his word to be instructed by him. Because we know this is where we need to be. We need that reminder of God's glory. We need to be reminded who our God is. We need that because we're created for him. And we need that because our only hope for salvation is also in him. We also need that because he is our strength when we are weak. 
We need to see his glory again and again and again because he's worth living for. He's everything that we live for and he's also worth dying for. God's glory is our only and our greatest treasure. It's like the psalmist says in Psalm 73, Whom do I have in heaven but you? And on earth too, there's nothing that I desire apart from you. That's why Paul gave everything he had and suffered countless whippings and countless beatings and so many trials and hours in prison to minister to the people at Corinth and in the rest of of his mission field. He wanted people to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that he himself saw and knew that was so precious and so valuable to him. And that then also must be the purpose behind every, every sermon preached from this pulpit and everything else too that we do as a congregation. God's glory is our greatest treasure. It's what we were created for and it's what we were saved for, to know him, to love him, and to live for him. So then, what are we as individual ministers or individual Christians who carry around that glory. Well, Paul says it in verse 7, we have this treasure, the knowledge of God's glory, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. In other words, we we aren't anything in ourselves, not as ministers and not as a church either. No, the only thing that gives us value as ministers or as a church is the treasure that we carry, the knowledge of the glory of God. See, God in his wisdom often chooses to show his grace and his glory to the weakest, most undeserving people precisely so that it would be clear that the glory is his and not theirs. Think of what he said to the Israelites through Moses when he took them out of Egypt. He says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for in fact, you were the fewest of all peoples. No, it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and has redeemed you from the house of slavery. Know therefore that the Lord, your God, is God. That's why he chooses weak, undeserving people, so that we would know we are not God and we haven't achieved this for ourselves. No, he is God and the glory is his. If people would look at us as a church and conclude that we are the most undeserving, weak, needy sinners, and that God is a powerful and gracious, saving God, well, then we've borne our witness well to the world. If people would look at your minister and say, there's nothing impressive about that man, but I want to know the God that he knows and this Jesus about whom he speaks, then I too have done a a good job. We have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
If there's one thing that the world should see in us, it's that our God is so precious to us that we are afflicted for him in every way, that we are often perplexed, even persecuted, and sometimes even struck down, and yet we still rejoice because knowing him is worth all the suffering that this life brings. It's what the church father, Tertullian, meant when he said the blood of the martyrs is seed. It's what, the, it, it's what happens when, when Christians pour themselves out for the glory of God. God is glorified in the eyes of those who see them making those kinds of sacrifices. Only a truly valuable, worthy God would be worth dying for and suffering for in that way. So though they, they might persecute us or though they might watch us from a distance as we suffer the trials of life that inevitably come our way, they can't help but see that having and knowing Christ and knowing the Father through him is more valuable to us than anything that we might lose here on earth. Nothing sends a clearer message about the glory of God and the beauty and worthiness of our God than that. It's important that we understand Paul's logic here. He says the surpassing power, and by that he means the power that overcomes persecutions, the power that is somehow almost miraculously able to rejoice even in the middle of sufferings and brokenness that we face in life. That surpassing power is not going to be found in jars of clay, at least not naturally. Jars of clay are so easily crushed and smashed, it doesn't take much. But Paul says, we're afflicted in every way, and yet we're not crushed. We're struck down, and yet we're not somehow destroyed. That, brothers and sisters, is a miracle. What kind of clay jar can be thrown onto the ground and smashed without yet breaking? And yet that is what we are. Clay jars that are not destroyed because our hope and our purpose and our joy is not in us. It's not in the clay. It's not in the strength that we have in ourselves. No, our hope and our joy is in the knowledge and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Young people need to understand this as well. When we're young and strong and the future is still bright, it's easy to think that we're somehow more than jars of clay, that we can make it on our own strength. It's easy to put our trust in our own abilities or to put our trust in the abilities of others. And of course, it's true that whatsoever we do, we should do with all our might. But youth and strength don't last. They won't be there forever. And the times will inevitably come when life crashes in with far more than enough destructive force to crush any jar of clay When the catechism asks us, what's your only comfort in life and death? Another way you could put it is, what's your surpassing power that overcomes? God is glorified in us when it is nothing but the treasure of knowing him that causes us to endure. And no, not even just endure, but even rejoice. Because he he is a treasure to us more than anything else that we have here on earth. And the world needs to see that, and we need to see it in one another. 
That is how God is glorified in us. When it's obvious that the surpassing power isn't found here in us, in our abilities. When it's obvious that we are just weak and fragile people, and yet we endure because the knowledge of God's glory that we carry is greater than anything that we face in this life. So then, brothers and sisters, let us as a church, together with Paul, not proclaim ourselves, but let us proclaim Jesus Christ as our Lord. He is our King, and He is our strength, our hope. It's not in man. Our identity as a church, it's not in ourselves. We're just jars of clay. Jesus Christ is our Lord. And he reigns in heaven and over the whole universe. The angels praise him in heaven. So let us here on earth proclaim his glory here. Amen. Let's respond to God.